Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. Roller coaster. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Hey, this is Citizen Chef, and I'm Tom Colicchio. On this episode, we're exploring the history of food and education in America. I'm talking to professor and author Dr. Janet Poppendick, who's going to show us how school lunch has changed, you know, or hasn't, uh, across the decades. And we'll think about what's in store for the future of the lunch period in our schools. I was I was kind of lucky, you know, when I was a kid going to school, I went to a Catholic school, and I, uh, you know, there was a little regulation where if you live close enough to school, you can actually walk home and and have your lunch at home. And I lived a block away from school. So my brothers and I, we we would go home for lunch. And also very fortunate that that my grandmother lived right next door. So we would go to her house. And my my grandmother um, was uh, bipolar. And when she was feeling well, she would just go to town. You know, we would we would come home and there would just be a feast laid out. And you know, she made an amazing grilled cheese sandwich, and I, I still remember her tomato soup that she made everything from scratch. And she would roast chicken and always some home baked pie or cake or something. We would walk back to school kind of full and take our time, and it was just always a great memory. And you know, also not only the great food, but we got to share a lot of time uh, with both grandparents during that little lunch break. And later on, I, I went to public school, and uh, I had the great fortune of having my mother prepare lunch for well, not only me, but probably two thousand other students. My mother managed a school cafeteria in Elizabeth, New Jersey. You know, it was always great that that I got to see uh, my mother from time to time. You know, I'd pop by and, you know, see how she was doing. And the downside was that if I ever got in trouble, she knew right away. <laughs> so, but it was it was a little later on. I think I was in my 30s, maybe. My father had passed away already. And so my mother, she started to complain that, that she was, you know, starting to, you know, her feet were hurting her. So I, I, you know, suggested that maybe she should think about retiring. And, you know, she said something that, that's, that, it was just really profound and, 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 and really stuck with me for, for a really long time. In fact, uh, it was much later on when I became an advocate, especially around school lunch, that I remember this story. And, and I often repeated it if I was talking to members of Congress or anyone else trying to get my point across. When I asked her you know, to retire, she said, no, I, I think I have a few years left, and, and I'll tell you why. She said, I know a lot of the kids who are coming in and out of my lunchroom that 
this is the only meal they're getting all day. And I have to fight like hell right now to make sure that we have fresh fruits and vegetables and that we're cooking a lot of the food from scratch. And my supervisor constantly pushing me to go to, you know, all pre-prepared meals. We can cut payroll and we can, you know, maybe cut down on some waste and stuff like that. And she said, you know, I'm fighting to make sure that these kids have healthy food. So I have a few years left. And, you know, again, at the time, I didn't think much about it until I started to become an activist. And those words, I remember those words. I remember what she said. And, And, you know, now... Now we're looking at these cafeteria workers very differently. I mean, they're on the front lines. They are the essential workers. And in fact, uh, in, in New York and I'm sure in many other cities and states and towns, when school, when the, when the kids went to distance learning, those cafeteria workers still had to go to work. They put themselves in danger because they still had a community to feed. And so I, I didn't, again, I didn't really think much about what my mom was doing. then. it was just, it was a job. And, and, but now I realize it was, you know, so much more. And then more recently, you know, we've seen the stories in the news of these kids who go through the lunch line and they they run out of money on their cars and lunch is taken away from them and they're given a cold cheese sandwich. And, you know, I, 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 I talked to my mom about that recently and she said, yeah, that, that would happen and I would just let the kids go through. And she said, you know, sometimes my counselor off, my supervisors would give me a hard time. But she said, there was no way that I could take food away, especially when I know these kids are hungry, that I couldn't take food away from these kids. And, and so I would just let them go. This is also part of the reason why I really truly believe that that school should be free for all. It shouldn't be this three-tiered system that we have. And and I thought the best person to have this discussion for, for our school lunch episode would be the woman who wrote the book Free for All, and that is Dr. Janet Poppendick. Hey, Janet. How you doing? I'm okay, Tom. How are you? Well, you know, considering... We're yeah. we're okay. We're okay. I, I, the 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 hardest thing these days is the the distance learning for the kids. That's 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 uh, it's challenging. Oh, I, I, have yeah. a, I have a, an older one that's a college student, but he's he's getting by. Um, yeah. So we're talking with uh, Dr. Janet Pomedic. She is the um, uh, senior faculty fellow at the Urban Food Policy Institute at the City University of New York, and also the author of Sweet Charity, Free for All, and Breadlines. Breadlines Knee Deep in Wheat. Breadlines Knee right. Deep in Wheat. It was a slogan during the Great Depression. Breadlines Knee Deep in Wheat are surely the handiwork of foolish men. We we, we do know, know each other. Um, when my wife, uh, Lori, uh, and her partner, Christy Jacobson, um, uh, made the film Place the Table, um, you were one of the people that we relied on to sort of explain uh, uh, various issues around hunger, especially the school lunch program. And so I, I think that's where I want to start. Um, uh, you know, mo- most people who are, um, uh, you know, don't, don't sort of aren't, aren't steeped in hunger and hunger related issues and in um, uh, some ways to, to alleviate hunger, they, they don't think in terms of school, uh, school breakfast, school lunch. Um, you know, the lunchroom is one of those things when you were a kid, you, you kind of, it broke up your day. Um, you know, you try to avoid the food fight. In most cases, uh, if you had access to outside, you, you, you spent as little time as possible so you can, so you can run outside. But, uh, you know, there are 30 million children who use our school lunch program and a good amount of those kids, um, that's the nutrition they get for the, for the entire day. So I, I just wanted to ask you briefly, sort of how did the school lunch program start? Why did it start? And then we'll talk a little bit about, about uh, the challenges that we see today in the school lunch program. So school lunch programs in the United States date back to the early years of the 20th century um, when 
compulsory education began to be the, the norm um, in the United States, um, many very poor families um, had relied on the work of their children to help uh, meet the family budget. And when kids were required to be in school, um, poor families found themselves even uh, less able to, to meet their food needs. And so schools began providing meals because kids were coming to school hungry. But this was not a federal program in any way, shape, or form. This was um, typically started by a charitable organization or a voluntary group of some sort, and in large cities, rapidly taken over by municipal government. So there was a network of these programs throughout the United States at the time that the Great Depression hit. And again, at that point, when children were visibly suffering from hunger and malnutrition and families were desperate, school lunch programs expanded in a lot of communities. In New York City, um, the records show that the teachers gave money to expand the school lunch program to be able to include more children. The federal government got involved because they had agricultural surpluses and needed a way to dispose of them. Um, in the Great Depression of the 1930s, the farm economy had been in trouble since the end of World War I. You know, farmers expanded acreage and planting during World War I. They were getting high prices. There was huge demand. At the end of the war, Congress canceled the war credits that had enabled our European allies to purchase American farm products, and the farm market collapsed, and it never really recovered. So when the Roosevelt administration came into power, um, they took steps to try to adjust the farm economy um, to remove surpluses from the market, and then they had a problem about what to do with them. They were a public relations problem for the government because so many people were hungry. And so they began donating farm, farm surpluses, purchasing from farmers, and donating for relief through the emergency relief agencies, but also through schools and orphanages and other institutions that serve children. So this was when the federal government got involved in, uh, in school lunch. And when World War II came along and some of the Depression-era relief programs were cut back, um, the Department of Agriculture lobbied for keeping and expanding um, contributions to the school meal programs because they were very worried that at the end of the war they would have another post-war slump in agriculture comparable to what had happened after World War I. Scott, so, so essentially, this wasn't about nutrition. This was about finding a, a market for commodities. I think it was about both. For the schools, it was very much about nutrition. The, the products they got from the federal government enabled them to serve far more nutritious lunches than they otherwise could have done. How's, how's the school lunch program, how has it changed since then uh, and over the years? If you can kind of walk through some of the big changes that you've seen um, in the school lunch program, breakfast and lunch program over the years. The first sort of big change, I guess you would say, was the creation of a permanent program in the National School Lunch Act. And that was lunch only <laughs> until the mid-1960s. Um, think about the 60s. Think about the civil rights movement calling attention to poverty in America. Um, after Kennedy's assassination, Johnson looking for um, a new theme, in a sense, for his presidency, declared the war on poverty. 
And that was a point at which people began paying some attention to what was happening to poor children. And educators argued that school lunch came too late in the day for a lot of kids. The morning hours are crucial for learning. Um, and that's when the breakfast program was begun in the mid 1960s as a pilot program by um, the early 70s, it was available to all schools. Any, any school could operate a school breakfast program that wanted to. Then some of the energy shifted to state and local advocates who um, began to press states for legislation requiring schools within the state to offer the breakfast program. And I know the sequence in New York was first they required it in cities with a population of more than 125,000. Um, and gradually we got to school breakfast in almost all the schools. So uh, the school lunch program, it, it, it is, the entire program is subsidized. It's essentially a three-tiered program. Can you, can you explain? Okay, sure. I can do that. And, you know, if you want to go back a little bit, when the School Lunch Act was passed in 1946, there was just sort of a vague requirement that in order to get the federal uh, contributions, schools had to agree that they would feed free of charge any children who were too poor to pay. But there were no standards as to what constituted being too poor to pay. And more importantly, there was no separate fi federal funding for those uh, meals that were served free to the children. The federal government made contributions, some money and um, commodities from uh, that were purchased on behalf of schools. And then it was left up to the schools to figure out how to cover the cost of the meals that were served free. And so you ended up with a situation in which schools in middle-class communities, the schools that were built for the baby boomers when we became school age, were built with cafeterias and kitchens and had enough paying children to cover the meals for children who were too poor to pay. But schools in very poor communities, in the first place, many of them were old inner city schools that had been built without kitchens and cafeterias, and others were in rural areas and small towns where nearly everyone was poor, and there weren't enough paying children who could pay enough to cover the cost of the meals for children um, who were too poor to pay. So in the mid-1960s, a national women's coalition did a study um, called Their Daily Bread of who was actually benefiting from the school lunch program. And they found that only a very small percentage of the nation's poor children were actually had access to the, the program. It was primarily benefiting children from the middle class. Um, so this was the point at which there began to be pressure for the federal government to pick up the tab on the free meals. And in 1970, 71, it was a whole rep, there were 19 pieces of legislation that uh, addressed school meals. But within those were legislation to um, guarantee reimbursement to the schools for the meals served free um, if they were served to children who qualified. Um, and national standards for who qualify. So this is where you began to get a three-tier, as you said, system of free lunches for children with incomes below 130% of the poverty level and reduced price lunches, which were very cheap, 
um, for children between 130% of the poverty line and at that point it was 190, uh, 95% of the poverty line. Later, that got pushed down at the outset of the Reagan administration to 185%. But um, a, a group that we might think of as near poor um, qualified for the reduced price. And then all other children paid um, a full price that was determined by their local school system. There wasn't a national price. So in your book, Free For All, you you, you uh, make an argument for why school lunch should be free. Uh, and stigma is part of that. Part of that. And, but what, what other arguments do you lay out in the book for making free uh, school lunch available to, to all the 30 million children who use uh, school lunch rooms? Well, first of all, we have about 30 million children have been eating the school lunch, but we have 55 million children in school. Okay. Um, so part of the question is, okay, so what's happening to the other 25 million children? And we know that a lot of them are getting by on a, a package of chips and a, a soft drink that they bring from home or pick up at the corner store, that they're eating unhealthy foods in lieu of a balanced, nutritious meal. Um, we know that a lot of kids just forego lunch altogether, especially in um, situations where lunch may be scheduled toward the end of the day or at the, the last period of the day, they just get out early. Um, so, so that's one reason to make it free for all is so that it can begin to reach the kids who have um, not been participating. Secondly, the issue of stigma that I mentioned even for the kids who who needed the meal and wanted it and decided to to eat it even if they were teased, that's no way to eat lunch. Lunch in a school should be something that brings us together. Um, did you ever go to summer camp? Um, I did not go to summer camp, but I I, uh, I did eat lunch in the cafeteria most days if I wasn't eating it in my coach's office. Um, but I also would go to the lunchroom for another reason, and that, that would be to say hello to my mother, um, who managed the school cafeteria lunch program. Well, the reason I asked you about lunch at summer camp is because if, for those of us who did have the pleasure of uh, summer camp um, as children, mealtime was something that everybody looked forward to. It was a great kind of unifier. And school meals could be that way too. School meals can be a point in the day when when people look forward to seeing their friends and sharing a meal. But that's not going to happen if people have been kind of classified as, you know, poor enough to eat free, reduced price and, and full price. So that's a, a second kind of reason for um, that I argue for universal free school meals. Third is that I think it's our responsibility. The children are in our care during those hours. We should feed them. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Ready? Okay. 
Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. I guess I guess the other the, I guess the other argument one can make is is and this is not for just feeding them but for feeding them healthier foods and, and mandating healthier foods. We saw uh, under the Obama administration the uh, uh, Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act uh, change some of those standards in the school lunch program. And uh, even though the bill passed and it increased, uh, uh, you know, took sugar out of the school lunch program, it increased the amount of whole wheats in the school lunch program, got rid of vending machines. Uh, you know, in some cases, school cafeterias are just an extension of uh, fast food operations. Um, and, and yet the whole time, um, uh, the president and, 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 and Michelle Obama, they were under uh, assault from the, the right, uh, um, sort of essentially saying, you know, we don't need a nanny state. We don't need, we don't need adults to tell children how to eat, which I, I thought was kind of strange because I, I tell my children what they should eat. Um, if I didn't tell them what to eat, they would eat candy all day and junk food. And in fact, if I didn't tell them to take a shower at night, they probably go, you know, weeks without showering either. So, you know, I think we are the adults in the room and we do have an obligation to our, our children to, to uh, you know, have standards and, and, and make sure that they are getting the proper nourishment and, and especially for, uh, for kids who aren't getting that proper nourishment at home. Um, so can, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's also a matter of, I, I believe very strongly in the idea of food education, a much broader concept than just nutrition education, no, because that, yeah. we have a, a lot of food miseducation that goes on in our economy all the time, the advertisement of, of foods to children. So we're, as a society, up against a lot of disinformation and misinformation and misleading presentations. And we need our schools to be able to, to teach children not only what the nutrients are and what they do for you and why you need them, but to enjoy um, a variety of healthy foods. And school meal programs are one way to, to do that. And you can't really integrate school food with the curriculum unless it's available to everybody. And so that's another reason that I think we really need to move to a universal model. We're making making progress in New York. We, we, we are, little by little. Um, it's funny, I, I was on a panel discussion recently and there was a, congress, um, a congressman from New York who um, uh, started going on and on about how bad school lunch was in New York. And I kind of stopped him. I said, well, actually, we're making some pretty good progress here. It's not as bad as you think it is. Um, and, um, but yeah, New, New, New York is, is, is making uh, some progress, but there's still, um, uh, you know. 
Right. There's definitely ways to go. But let me just go. So we hear the news stories all you know all the time of kids who uh, their money is run out of their account and they get a cheese sandwich and they get taken out of line and and then they're really ostracized. Um, and then. And I, 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 I wanted to ask you about this because the the reaction to that is there almost seems to be a charitable response where there are, are various charities or are, 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 are people who are, are looking to do good who who think that they should just fund those accounts for kids and 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 then again we have uh, a um, uh, a charity uh, um, response to uh, an issue that we that we shouldn't have in the first place. Um, and I know this is something else that you you often write about as well is is whether or not we should deal with some of the these issues around hunger, um, you know, through a charitable response or a governmental response. Well, we could get to that in a moment, but the the issue you raise of the so called school lunch shaming is really a fascinating one because in that case. The stigma is attached not to the kids who get the free lunch because their accounts don't run out. <laughs> it's kids in the reduced price lunch category and the full price lunch category. And, you know, those standards of 130% of the poverty line and it's the top for reduced price is 185% of the poverty line were established back when the poverty line was a little more realistic, a little closer to reality. The, the poverty line gets adjusted every year for the cost of living, but it doesn't ever get adjusted for changes in the way we live. So if you think that was actually based on a study that was done in the mid-1950s that found out that a, a families spent about a third of their income on food. So the idea was if by allocating a third of your income, you couldn't um, buy a minimally adequate diet, then you were officially poor. And now families on the whole spend less than 10% of their income on food. So the whole mm, way we spend our income has shifted. Think about all the things that we need to spend money on now that didn't exist in the mid-1950s. Those aren't luxuries. Those are necessities. Right. right. No, if you want to be a participant in the economy, if you want to be able to get a job, or you need those things. So... We have a situation in which a lot of the kids who are not financially eligible for, um, for free or reduced price meals, if they live, especially if they live in high cost of living areas where rents and uh, mortgages are high, they, they don't always have the money for, for the meals. So another reason to go with a universal approach is to make sure those kids get included, but also to out of this situation where they're being, as you say, pulled out of line and given a cheese sandwich or otherwise shamed um, because they're cancer Yeah, Yeah, that, that's the first time I've heard that because I, I think the average person, even, I mean, and I spent a little time thinking about these things, um, always sort of uh, uh, went to these are the poorest of the people who are not um, funding their accounts. But that's that's not the case because the, the poorest of the, of the students are already getting free lunch. So um, that, that's right. something I hadn't thought of. Yeah. So we've, <laughs> we've enlarged the pool of people who get to feel shame associated with school lunch. Now it's not just the kids eating for free. But anyway, it's a, it really is a counterproductive, educationally completely unsound situation. One of the things you always hear from school principals is how much they value parent engagement, how important it is for parents to attend parent-teacher conferences and come to events at the school. If your account is in the red, 
and you know you were going to show up at school and be asked to pay up, you know, you're not coming to parent-teacher conferences or exhibit night or what have you. It's, it, it deters parents from engagement with the school. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. So let's talk a little bit about the charity model uh, and dealing with hunger. I know in, in Sweet Charity, this is something that, that you wrote about. Um, uh, it's a book that's on my bookshelf. Um, uh, why is the charity model inadequate to, de- to deal with, with issues of hunger and, and malnutrition in, in America? Well, you know, there's both a kind of moral philosophical argument and uh, um, reality and do the math um, argument. When, when we think of food charities, most of us think of food banks and food pantries and soup kitchens. And certainly now food banks are, are greatly in the news. But at the height of the Great Recession, um, an advocacy organization called Bread for the World did some calculations and calculated that if we think of assisted meals, meals that are served at, at soup kitchens or that are prepared from groceries that are donated through a, a food pantry out of or meals that are assisted by the federal government through the SNAP program or through school meals or the WIC program. One in 24 assisted meals was assisted by private charity and the other 23 were provided through federal programs. As the um, reliance on federal programs declined after the recession resolved, that went down to about one in 12. We, we provide about 12 times as much assistance through the federal programs as we do through the private charity. Private charity makes a difference. Um, if you're in need and you turn to a food pantry, you, you de- in our system, you definitely need it to be there. But they have had a, a disproportionate share of the public consciousness. Um, if we want to make sure that people eat, we need to increase the SNAP benefit, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, formerly known as food stamps, 
um, we need to reduce the barriers to accessing SNAP that have been created, particularly the ones over the last several decades. Um, we need to get over the idea that work requirements um, are the best way to enable people to to um, start careers and work because work requirements in a program like SNAP don't work very well. Many people who work cannot document in a way that's acceptable to a, a welfare office that they are working 20 hours a week. But we have a, a fascination with the charitable approach. We, it's It's kind of romantic. And particularly when it's tied to food that might otherwise go to waste. Um, I uh, have been very struck by the uh, accounts in the press of milk being poured out in the fields, um, vegetables being plowed under or, or left unharvested, and the outcry saying we need to get this food to the food banks. And certainly, There's no infrastructure to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're not set up. Federal government has food purchasing infrastructure, um, and they can expand it, and they have expanded it. Um, but the uh, current Secretary of Agriculture seems to be hung up on the idea of these prepacked boxes, what's now being called the Farm to Family Program, but it's very much the uh, harvest box that he proposed a couple of years ago. Um, and it's not an it's not an adequate response. The, one of the the ways in which SNAP is so much better than a pre-packed box is that people can reflect the needs and preferences of their own families. Well, that, and there's also a system by which you can engage. Um, you know, what, what's the likelihood of, I mean, the problem right now with, with milk getting thrown out and, and, and eggs being broken is, is just the markets have disappeared. Uh, if you sell into, uh, uh, you know, a, a market that, that supplies restaurants and hotels and, and college campuses, you've lost that market. And, and, the, and the packers can't really turn on a dime and start, and start you know, repackaging products for, uh, for supermarkets. That, right. And for, right, for, right. For going through the, the, there's, there's two kind of food systems in this country. One, is go, one goes through supermarkets to feed households and the other one goes into institutional feeding. And, and the two really don't work together very well. And, and so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, I, have read some of the things that you've been writing about this, and and uh, I've I've been talking about this as well. And so, but we, but the, the the SNAP program again, if you just fund the SNAP program, make it easier. I mean, one thing I I just it, it makes me crazy is when you see all these lines of people lining up for a food pantry, people who never thought in a million years that they would need this kind of help. Um, they should have people in those lines signing them up for SNAP. Uh, there, should, there should be outreach there. Um, most of these people don't even know there's a SNAP program and or, or know how it works. And and what that does, again, it, it, there's a system by which have feeding people. It's a supermarket. You you have food and people go there with money and the system works really, really well if you have money. And so right now people just need money um, or, 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 or SNAP. And so, we, we you know, the system actually works. You know, and but in terms of getting food that is is has to be repacked into the marketplace, that that's a little more difficult. And I'm concerned that the companies that were awarded some of these contracts to actually get the food from the farm to a distribution, you know, into into uh, alternative distributions, a lot of these companies have absolutely no experience at all doing this. And there was a, a catering company or a party planning company that got a thirty-six million dollar contract. And this is what I think happens when you rely on uh, private sector and charity to take care of some of society's uh, you know, problems. When something big like this happens, government's just not prepared to, to step in. 
there, there is no plan. Right. You know, the other thing that strikes me, there is an, uh, in, in the Farm Bill a farm to school program. Yes. Um, where uh, communities, uh, a certain percentage of the food that's, food that's in the school lunch program should come from local farmers. But it always seems to me that there's something missing in between um, because most school lunch programs, the, the cooks aren't cooking and processing food anymore. They're just reheating food. Um, in fact, a lot of school lunch programs, a lot of school cafeterias, they no longer have cooking equipment. They have reheating equipment. Um, and so that piece, is, that piece is missing. And it seems to me if we really want to um, you know, create a program where, where local farmers can can find a market in their in their local schools. There has to be a place where that food could be processed, especially since so much of that food is grown in the summer when school's really not in session. And so, if there were regional um, processing facilities that can take that food, minimally process it, meaning blanch peas and blanch carrots and, and freeze them, um, then we actually would have a true farm to school, to school program. You have any any thoughts on that at all? Well, I think that. There are very good reasons for schools to have the capacity to cook. So if I were doing a Green New Deal infrastructure investment to uh, create new jobs to replace some of the jobs that will be permanently gone after the pandemic because of changes in the way we live, I think building school kitchens and cafeterias might be um, a part of my infrastructure project. There could certainly be regional processing facilities. Um, like you just described. And they would be better, I think, than the current system of relying heavily on, you know, orders through distributors that can be getting the stuff from anywhere in the nation and in some cases outside it. Um, but you lose the educational value of the farm to school connection, which has been very much part of the farm to school projects where farmers come into the classroom to speak and kids go on field trips to the farm. Um, and it was intended as not just a way to mm, create local markets for farmers, although that's a, a big motivator, but also a way to help with the food education project that I was talking about earlier, because we are so divorced from our food supply, most of us. We literally don't know where our food comes from. And in a future where we had a more ecologically resilient food system, I think we would have much shorter supply chains. And um, the capacity to value farms and farming and the contribution of, of farming to, um, to local communities, I think it, that is part of what uh, farm to school programs were hoping to teach. Do you think we'll see a time when, when school is free for all and we have healthier food, uh, food that goes even beyond uh, what was in the Hungry Healthy uh, Kids uh, Food Act, when we're seeing the cafeterias being used uh, not only to feed uh, our children uh, nutritious food, but also used as a classroom? Do, do, you, do you actually think that can happen? And, and um, do you think that possibly uh, because this this current pandemic has really uh, exposed the weaknesses in so many systems, do you think there's an opportunity um, that one day we'll see that? So the the quick answer is yes. <laughs> Can or could, I'm not ready to say will or shall. <laughs> um, and you describe a cafeteria in the east end of Long Island where the kids run the the uh, 
cafeteria. I visited one um, in Davenport, California, um, fixing the school lunch, preparing the lunch was a class that kids signed up for. And it was a very small school, a hundred kids, and there were about 20 fifth graders and they were divided into five teams of four for the five days of the week. And each team planned a meal and prepared it and served it. And the fourth graders um, set the tables and picked flowers in the school garden and decorated them. And it was an absolutely wonderful um, system. The Ross School in Long Island was one that I visited before I before I started to write Free For All, and it had a profound effect on me. I left thinking, okay, this is a private school, but this is what I want for all our children. And, you know, John Dewey was promoting this at the, the turn of the, the 20th century, in the early 20th century, having kids tend gardens and prepare food and, and uh, fix the, the school meals. So it's absolutely possible um, it's an issue of our priorities um, and our vision and the power of the food corporations who currently benefit. I mean, we have the system we do now in part because of the organizations, the corporations that have benefited from it. Um, so I don't think we'll get to a new vision without, without a struggle. Um, I'd, I'd like to read you something that someone sent me. Um, and You'll you'll see the relevance in in a moment. This is Anandati Roy from an upcoming book called The Pandemic is a Portal. Nothing could be worse than a return to normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. I, I was very moved when someone sent me that because I think the pandemic is such a challenge to all of us and we're all coping with how to maintain our own functioning and mental health and the situation of our loved ones, and we have this sense that the world will be very different once this is behind us. But what are we doing now to try to make it the world <laughs> that we want it to be? And I, I think school food is a, a profoundly important arena in which to be imagining, you know, how we want things to be on the other side of that portal. Well, I think there are plenty of people like you who are providing uh, a vision for what a better world can look like. And, and hopefully now we may have a, a more receptive uh, government and, and population to, uh, and, you know, hopefully the ground is a little more fertile than it was uh, two months ago. Um, so I guess we'll leave it there. Um, I'm talking to uh, Dr. Janet Poppendick. Uh, she is a senior faculty fellow at the Urban Food Policy Institute at the City University of New York and author of Sweet Charity, Free For All. Thank you for, 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 for joining us. And uh, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, uh, we'll find a, a better way. So thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
Again, a, a very special thanks to Dr. Uh, Janet Popendick and always a shout out to A Place at the Table. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartMedia. Christopher Hasiotis is our executive producer. Jesslyn Shields is our researcher. And Gabrielle Collins is our producer. Don't forget to rate us and we'll, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 